I received my dear friend's two letters, one for Wednesday and one for Saturday. This is again Wednesday. I do not deserve one for today, because I have not answered the former. But indolent as I am and adverse to writing, the fear of having no more of your pleasing epistles, if I do not contribute to the correspondence, obliges me to take up my pen, and as Mr. B has kindly sent me word that he sets out tomorrow to see you, instead of spending this Wednesday evening, as I have done, its namesake, in your delightful company, I sit down to, to spend it in thinking of you. I'm writing to you, and in reading over and over again your letters, I am charmed with your description of paradise, and with your plan of living there, and I approve much of your conclusion that in the meantime we should draw all the good we can from this world. In my opinion we might all draw more good from it than we do, and suffer less evil if we would take care not to give too much for whistles, for to me it seems the most of the unhappy people we meet with are become so by neglect of, of that caution. You ask what I mean. You love stories, and will excuse my telling one of myself. When I was a child of seven years old, my friends on a holiday filled my pocket with coppers. I went directly to a shop where they sold toys for children, and being charmed with the sound of a whistle that I met by the way in the hands of another boy, I voluntarily offered and gave all my money for one. I then came home and went whistling all over the house, much pleased with my whistle, but disturbing all the family. My brothers and sisters and cousins, understanding the bargain I had made, told me I had given four times as much for it as it was worth, put me in mind what good things I might have bought with the rest of the money, and laughed at me so much for my folly that I cried with vexation, and the reflection gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure. This, however, was afterwards of use to me, the impression continuing on my mind so that often, when I was tempted to buy some unnecessary thing, I said to myself, Don't give too much for the whistle, and I save my money. As I grew up, came into the world, and observed the actions of men, I thought I met with many, very many, who gave too much for the whistle. When I saw one too ambitious of court favor, sacrificing his time and attendance on levies, his repose, his liberty, his virtue, and perhaps his friends, to attain it, I have said to myself, this man gives too much for his whistle. When I saw another fond of popularity and constantly employing himself in political bustles, neglecting his own affairs and ruining them by that neglect, he pays indeed, said I, too much for his whistle. If I knew a miser who gave up every kind of comfortable living, all the pleasures of doing good to others, and all the esteem of his fellow citizens, and the joys of benevolent friendship, for the sake of accumulating wealth, poor man, said I, you pay too much for your whistle. When I met with a man of pleasure, sacrificing every laudable improvement of the mind, or of his fortune, to mere corporeal sensations, and ruining his health in their pursuit, mistaken man, said I, you are providing pain for yourself, instead of pleasure, you give too much for your whistle. If I see one fond of appearance, or fine clothes, fine houses, fine furniture, fine equipages, all above his fortune, for which he contracts debts, and ends his career in a prison, alas, say I, he work, death, and sickness by Leo Tolstoy. This is a legend current among the South American Indians. God, say they, at first made men so that they had no need to work. They needed neither houses nor clothes nor food, and they all lived till they were a hundred and did not know what illness was. When after some time God looked to see how people were living, he saw that instead of being happy in their life, they had quarreled with one another, and each caring for himself had brought matters to such a pass that far from enjoying life, they cursed it. Then God said to himself, This comes of their living separately, each for himself, and to change this state of things, God so arranged matters that it became impossible 
for people to live without working. To avoid suffering from cold and hunger, they were now obliged to build dwellings, and to dig the ground, and to grow and gather fruits and grains. Work will bring them together, thought God. They cannot make their tools, prepare, and transport their timber, build their houses, sow and gather their harvest, spin and weave, and make their clothes. Each one alone by himself will make them understand that the more heartily they, they work together, the more they will have and the better they will live, and this will unite them. Time passed on and again God came to see how men were living and whether they were now happy, but he found them living worse than before. They worked together, that they could not help doing, but not all together, being broken up into little groups, and each group tried to snatch work from other groups and they hindered one another, wasting time and strength in their struggles, so that things went ill with them all, having seen that this too was not well. God decided so as to arrange things, that man should not know the time of his death, but might die at any moment, and he announced this to them. Knowing that each of them may die at any moment, thought God, they will not by grasping at gains that may last so short a time spoil the hours of life allotted to them. But it turned out otherwise. When God returned to see how people were living, he saw that their life was as bad as ever. Those who were strongest, availing themselves of the fact that men might die at any time, subdued those who were weaker, killing some and threatening others with death. It came about that the strongest and their descendants did no work and suffered from the weariness of idleness, and while those who were weaker had to work beyond their strength and suffered from lack of rest, each set of men feared and hated the other, and the life of man became yet more unhappy. Having seen all this, God, to mend matters, decided to make use of one last means. He sent all kinds of sickness among men. God thought that when all men were exposed to sickness, they would understand that those who are well should have pity on those who are sick and should help them, that when they themselves fall ill, those who are well might in turn help them. And again God went away, but when he came back to see how men lived now, that they were subject to sickness, he saw that their life was worse even than before. The very sickness that in God's purpose should have united men had divided them more than ever. Those men who were strong enough to make others work forced them also to wait on them in times of sickness, but they did not, in their turn, look after others who were ill. And those who were forced to work for others, and to look after them when sick, were so worn with work that they had no time to look after their own sick, but left them without attendance. The sight of the sick folk might not disturb the pleasures of the wealthy. Houses were arranged in which these poor people suffered and died, far from those whose sympathy might have cheered them, and in the arms of hired people who nursed them without compassion or even with disgust. Moreover, people considered many of the illnesses infectious, and fearing to catch them not only avoided the sick, but even separated themselves from those who attended the sick. Then God said to himself, If even this means will not bring men to understand,